the International Baccalaureate would like to bring you a special series entitled Thinking About Day One, A Trauma-Informed Reopening of Schools. My name is Robert Kelty, and in our first episode on Thinking About Day One, we welcome two experts to help us better understand a common phrase in the education community, trauma-informed schooling. To better understand the phrase, we look to the National Association of School Psychologists, or NASP. NASP is a professional association representing more than 25,000 school psychologists and related professionals throughout the United States and 25 countries worldwide. And it is the world's largest organization for school psychologists working to advance effective practices for improving student learning and mental health. We have Dr. Kathleen Minky, the Executive Director of NASP, and Dr. Eric Rawson, the Director of Professional Development, as well as the author of Supporting and Educating Traumatized Students, a Guide for School-Based Professionals. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. So when we think of schools, there are some general ideas that we can all relate to. We want our schools to be spaces of learning and inquiry where students cross lines of difference and learn from one another through play and study, where difference is valued and celebrated, and where students feel safe and nurtured. And we really dream of our schools to mirror our ideal society and see education as a means to a better world. But to create these spaces, a focus on the social and emotional well-being of our collective students is necessary. And we need to recognize that all students bring some form of need and or trauma, especially now considering the pandemics of COVID-19 and institutional racism. Part of the strategies recommended by the research to create these environments is trauma-informed schooling. Dr. Minky, how would you define trauma-informed schooling? The things that come to mind for me is, is really recognizing that all behavior is communication and that when kids have, or adults, have been in situations of chronic stress, of uh, chronic anxiety, uh, have experienced traumatic uh, events, that the behaviors that they show and the ways that they communicate are going to be different than kids who have not had those same kinds of experiences. And so our role and goal as educators is to understand behavior, to see it as communication, and to figure out ways to best support those children and adolescents and adults who may have had those kinds of experiences. And Dr. Rawson, what does that term mean for you when you hear the word trauma-informed schooling? Well, I think a concise way to think about it is that it's where the adults in the building acknowledge and appreciate and recognize and respond to the fact that many of the things we are seeing are kind of almost predictable responses to their environment, which often can be extremely stressful or even traumatic. But I think it goes beyond that in that it's not just the individuals and a framework for how they work with students and how they interact with students and families, but it's how is the system designed to not only en enable teachers to teach, but students to learn. And so you were addressing the idea too, that there are 
conditions in which enable students to learn most effectively and enable them to thrive. And there are mechanisms and ways that we can integrate a lot of the principles of trauma-informed schooling into what we do. So trauma-informed schooling is not a program, it's a framework and an approach which we think about how we educate our students and how we interact and engage with students and families. And so when we think about that framework, what typically does that framework consist of? You know, there are several different models and approaches in the research as far as that have identified themselves as, you know, a trauma-informed framework and they have some good research support. When you whittle it down and there's been some processes of thinking, what are the common elements in all of these? Eight elements have sort of emerged over time. Of those eight elements, six of those elements are all at the systems level. There are things like whole school programming and, and trauma programming and safety programming, looking at things like discipline, your processes for family engagement, even things like staff well-being, and acknowledging that staff may have their own stresses that they're bringing, but secondary traumatic stress is real, and that the idea that staff self-care shouldn't be the pure obligation of an individual, but the system should have structures in place that allow them to you know, experience that stress and have a support network in place. So things like a tap in and tap out system or buddy classrooms or queer ways to set boundaries. So, you know, when you think about the framework, it's really thinking about it at a systems level. For example, how is our discipline system designed to have consistency, but also allow flexibility? So it's not just a punishment menu, but the individuals making decisions can take into account the potential impact of a student's environment at home or in their community or even in school on their behaviors and think about it less as a deficit model and more about a skill building process. Just to add a little bit to that, I think that, you know, it's so important that we do think about ways to support kids and adults in where they are and what experiences that they have had. And again, going back to that notion of behavior as communication and not as an internal deficit of a child. You know, people's behavior is their attempt to solve their problems. And so our task as adults becomes, how do we provide supports? How do we understand the behaviors that kids are, are showing? How do we provide supports around that so that those kids are in a position to learn and teachers are in a position to teach? I really uh, appreciate that framework in terms of behavior as a means of communication and as a method to solve the problem in which they're dealing with. Dr. Minky, it's clear now that schools will be reopening in some manner, and most schools will be focused on the logistics based on state and CDC guidelines. You recently wrote an article entitled, The Pandemic is Causing Widespread Emotional Trauma. Schools should be ready to help. And I thought it was a very powerful piece. In, in your opinion, what should every school leader around the world be thinking about in terms of helping and how we help our students and families and educators as we open our school doors? I would say first, you know, if you haven't started planning, you're late to the party <laughs> and you really, really need to be thinking again from that systemic level about, you know, how are we going to build supports at the district level that then could be adapted and modified at the individual school level? As Eric said a minute ago, this can't be something that is left to an individual teacher or to, to an individual principal. There has to be a system of supports that is being considered and planned. And 
one of the unique aspects of the current crises that we're facing is that unlike other kinds of school crisis events where you know there is a fire or a hurricane or or even a shooting it's a localized thing that and there are other helpers who can come to help and in this circumstance everyone has been stressed everyone has been experiencing these dual crises that we're facing and so we have to figure out how to support people within that system ourselves and so thinking about it again from that standpoint of what can we assess how can we assess our environment how can we assess the resources that we have how can we do a good needs assessment that will help us understand what the experiences of our kids our families and our teachers have been in this last period of months because while we're all experiencing the same set of crises we're not going to be reacting to them in the same way and we haven't all had the same experience and i think that that notion of really being flexible and adaptable and building an individualized set of supports at the school level is really really important so things like you know doing a needs assessment doing some resource mapping making sure that you are thinking about how can we best utilize the resources that we have as a as the national association of school psychologists we think about how school psychologists are used and there will be a pent up demand of assessment and special education concerns and those sorts of things but we also really want to be making sure that we are providing supports for kids social emotional uh, health that kids are not going to learn when they are scared when they are anxious and feeling sad so those social emotional needs really need to be addressed first before we really start getting serious about academic supports and and academic progress so you know again i think that focusing on relationship building how are we going to support everyone that's in our building child and adult as they return to kind of more typical schooling experiences it always humbles me when i think about the power of relationships in schools and just how powerful that can be in the trajectory of a student's entire life outcome so thank you for that eric what are your thoughts there i mean especially as the author of a book that speaks specifically to this about how we support and educate our traumatized students well I, you know i i want to build off of what kathy said and even what we were just talking about as far as relationships go which i think remain a a prerequisite to effective learning you know our learning environment is social in nature and a we have a situation where you know the ability to exercise and learn our social emotional skills has been you know the rug's been pulled out from under us and so students will be returning to school many of which might be in new schools right incoming kindergartners middle schoolers high schoolers so we're going to need to be teaching and reteaching our expectations and what we want i think we need to maybe pull back a little bit on our academic demands and gradually reintroduce academic rigor and focus a lot on social emotional skill building be sure that when we see resistance or behaviors that might be otherwise concerning that we don't see that immediately as willful disobedience that we don't see that as an attack on us as adults or personal against us but rather an adaptive or potentially adaptive response to a, an otherwise unpredictable stressful environment where they feel potentially disempowered they may feel abandoned they may have lost trust in the system to take care for them or the community to take care for them they may be confused they may lack any sense of confidence 
that things will ever go back to normal or that when someone says school will be in session next week, that that will actually occur. I think we also need to be aware of all of the relationships that never had closure in the previous year. So even just thinking at the beginning, you know, how are we allowing opportunities for people to connect with one another that they didn't have closure with in the previous year? Maybe staff have retired and how are we reconnecting with them if that's possible? Lots of schools are thinking about matching classes and keeping them the same as much as they can or something called looping, which is usually more for elementary schools where teachers and students follow each other for that continuity. Again, you know, not only thinking about the need to build relationships and focus and infrastructure on establishing and reestablishing a sense of community, but also leveraging the existing relationships that occurred last year to kind of reestablish a sense of safety as well in that this is a school building. People are here to take care of you. This is a place where you're known and where you're loved and where you're welcomed. We're thinking about this largely from the COVID point of view. But again, the overlay of the racial injustices that we have seen over the last few months, kids are not immune to what they've seen on TV, perhaps what they've experienced in their own communities. And we're faced in a situation in many schools where, you know, the adults may be white and the kids may be of color predominantly. And there's going to be some discomfort around having conversations that are real and that are supportive of what kids have experienced. And I think that, you know, again, going back to the notion of what should school administrators be thinking about, it's like, how are we going to support those conversations? How are we going to make sure that adults are able to have those kinds of conversations, difficult conversations with kids? And I think, you know, again, it's important for the adults to understand that, you know, they do not have to have all the answers but you know they can ask good questions and they can give kids spaces to talk about what they have experienced what that was like for them what things helped them what kinds of things did you do to feel better and that worked for you and then you know as a community and as a school how can we work together to make this a safe and happy and productive place for everyone in our community and those conversations can be challenging and i think that again as administrators we're going to want to provide the adults the space to figure all that out. I'd like to build off of that too. I mean, I think administrators can certainly assist in leading those conversations with staff as soon as possible, but also, you know, the idea that there's evidence of the benefits of providing scripts to teachers to deliver to students to at least open the door to share resources, right? And usually there's these kind of four elements. First, you give the facts you reaffirm safety, you validate and allow different emotions, and then you allow questions and direct them to places or people in the building that can provide additional support. And I think that might be helpful not only around COVID, but around issues of social justice. And then around other potential issues of the fact that we know, and there's evidence to support this, that many students are experiencing increased adversities or stressors in some areas. So there's evidence of higher levels of domestic abuse, evidence of higher levels of maltreatment, and no adults around to actually report it. There's evidence of increased sexual abuse. In fact, at the end of March, the National Sexual Abuse Hotline had, I think, a 22% increase in calls, and half of those were from minors. And that was just at the end of March. So 
there's increased amount of stressors. There's these multiple levels that'll be impacting people differently. And so giving teachers some of the tools and the scripts to uh, at least open that door, I think can be a really helpful. NASP has a prepare curriculum, which you know is an evidence-based crisis preparedness and response curriculum. Within that, there's actually something on our website, which is free, which is a resource to help lead psychoeducational classroom groups. And it's structured and designed to allow f- for these kind of discussions. Any other recommendations or ideas around tangible strategies at all levels, at the school district, the school and the classroom level? Well, we do have, I mean, on our website, you can find a joint document that we developed with the American School Counselors Association on school reentry considerations. And it goes through, I think it's 10 major areas to think about as schools begin to reopen. And I think that's a good place to start, but again, comes back to the notion of relationship building and making sure that every child has at least one person in that school that they feel cared about, that they feel noticed by, that they know that if I don't show up, somebody's going to notice and care. So, you know, those relationships can be so protective as kids start to work through whatever it is that they've experienced. Again, remembering that kids have experienced this in all different ways. And some kids are going to come back with feeling okay. They're kind of good. They're great. It's great. I'm glad back in the school building, even if I got to wear a mask, it's, this is awesome. And other kids are not going to feel that way. And you may see kids that seem good at the start, three months into the school year may hit a wall. So I think that that notion of everyone being connected to at least one adult in the building is going to be very, very protective in making sure that kids' individual needs get met. Yeah, there's a great tool. It's called a relationship mapping tool. You know, you can look for it online. I think Harvard Graduate School of Education has a great website around this. But basically, it's this concept where you have a list of all the students in your school and, and the staff go around and identify the students that they feel they have a strong relationship with. And this helps operationalize what that might mean and the process for how the staff do this. And in the end, you might look and see there's two or three students in this grade that nobody really knows or feels connected to. And these are students that we need to make a proactive concerted effort. Every time I've heard from people that have done this or participated in this exercise, it's always an extremely valuable and powerful tool. And I I think it's probably more necessary than ever. The notion of really paying attention to staff well-being and making sure that staff too have a place to feel heard, that there's flexibility, you know, everyone who's going to be coming back into a school system as an adult, you know, many of those folks are parenting and they may be having childcare challenges. They may be worried about the their own health or about the health of loved ones. And those are, are going to be very real considerations. So self-care, again, not as an individual thing, but making sure that there is space in the school community for people to say, hey, I'm struggling. I need a break. I need some help. And that help will be forthcoming. I think when we talk about relationships, right, it's not just students with each other and students with staff. It's also staff with staff. And is the school and are the administrators taking active opportunities to allow those relationships to build, right? 
are there socials? Is there are there award ceremonies and are they acknowledging each other? And, and do they create an environment where they're allowed to enjoy each other's company and get to know each other as individuals? Certainly not everyone's going to be friends with everybody, but at the very least they know each other. Maybe at best some people are tolerating each other, but ideally you need a place where you go to work and you feel like you're going to be supported. And, and you know, someone was talking to me about this and, you know, this concept of self-care is often people taking selfies on a boat or a picture of their legs uh, holding a margarita glass on a lounge chair, right? And saying self-care. Well, you can get as many massages and do as much yoga as you want, but if you go back to a workplace that's toxic, that you don't feel supported, that you don't feel cared for, and people actually are happy to see you, it's not going to do you any good on what you do on the weekends. In terms of trauma-informed strategies and implementing these strategies in just a couple months, specifically for schools that may not be well-versed yet in what trauma-informed schooling is, and how it actually looks. Can you speak about how a school could address some implementation challenges to include trauma as a beginning of their opening protocol? I think we want to move away from thinking about this as like a day one protocol. You know, if you think about trauma-informed approaches and trauma-informed schoolings, it's, a, again, a framework in which we interact with students and families and each other. It's a framework in which we design our policies and evaluate our effectiveness in that we maintain a hypothesis that some of the challenges that students may be facing can at least partially or wholly be attributed to a stressful environment or perhaps ongoing and chronic stress and trauma. And so a big part of that is, of course, having the staff buy in, have a shared understanding and definition about what that means. And a lot of times, even though the term has been out there a lot, if you get a group of educators working in the same building and you actually have a brief professional development experience, that's maybe 20 minutes. And then you ask them if they had a shared understanding about what that meant and a shared vocabulary. The answer will almost always be no, because people are viewing it very differently. And so I think one of the challenges and implementation challenges, of course, is lacking a shared understanding and the definition and appreciation of that impact, the impact on neurology, the impact on behavior, the impact on social and emotional well-being, on your neurology. So I think a critical piece is when we're thinking about our professional development for staff and what's happening over the summer and getting them ready, a big part of that is creating a shared collective understanding about what students are coming in with, that the behaviors that we're seeing, again, are communicating an unmet need and a skill deficit in their ability to effectively communicate and articulate what those needs are. Yeah, and I think one of the earliest trauma-informed trainings that I remember happening where I used to work, I actually heard teachers walk away saying, well, these kids are broken, see? There's nothing we can do. And like, wow, that is so not the point. <laughs> so I think that, you know, helping the adults understand that, again, these behaviors make perfect sense, that the kid is definitely trying to solve a problem and is trying to communicate what they need and is not simply being defiant. And that 
new behaviors can be learned when kids begin to feel safe, when they begin to feel supported. They can find other ways of getting their needs met other than having that sort of that flight, fight, freeze response that you see in kids who have experienced trauma. And so, you know, again, I think some planfulness and some care and really, you know, not doing a drive-by, you know, one-hour sit-and-get on trauma and feeling like, yep, check that box. You know, we've got our teachers trained up. It's a process and it's fairly intensive. Again, when a kid has experienced a lot of challenges and again, is coming into a situation where maybe they also the adults have experienced a lot of challenges, people's stress cups are already full. They don't have a lot of room to maneuver. So everyone needs to be respectful and understanding and really try to seek to understand behavior rather than judge behavior and then help other individuals find other ways of getting their needs met that are more conducive to positive relationships and learning. Right. So so here's a real life example of that, right? So a student is brought up as a concern for constantly interrupting, right? And then the goal is to reduce interruptions. So rather than just saying our goal is for you to be compliant and basically not talk, we go back and say, well, we should acknowledge the fact that we know that chronic stress and trauma is very bad for things like executive functioning, things like impulse control and inhibition. We look at when those interruptions are happening and we would then reframe it as saying, well, interruptions on their own are not necessarily a bad thing, right? It's possible that they're thinking critically, that they're asking questions and not just taking everything that they're told at face value. Maybe they're advocating for themselves in a certain way. And so the skill they need to be taught is how to communicate effectively and how to time that appropriately and respect the rules in the classroom. But we don't want to stifle someone's interest in speaking up for themselves and advocating for themselves and asking good questions. And we also want to be aware of the fact that it's possible that neurologically is more challenging for them to inhibit a question that comes up in real time and that it's not designed to make my life as a teacher awful. That's not the intent, even if it's actually happening. So again, that's a simple example about how we're kind of reframing the approach that we take in making the learning environment as positive as possible. And with that is a shift of the power dynamic in terms of having those spaces for inquiry, for dialogue, for restorative practices, for culturally relevant teaching, I just love how you both are framing this as this is all inherent to a framework of trauma-informed schooling. Uh, And these are best practices throughout the literature. And so with that, and after any significant event, reflection often comes. And as we reflect on the closing of last year and the opening of this year, we have a window to re-examine how we school. How would you reimagine schools looking forward based on your work and expertise? Schooling that focuses on building relationships, supportive, productive relationships around kids is the kind of school I would want my kid to go to. That there is a system of supports that's built around children so that their individual needs, their individual experiences, the natural supports that they have in their communities, which are sometimes difficult for us to see as educators. We judge things from our own perspectives. 
and we don't always know the communities that our students are uh, living in and the strengths of those communities. And so a school where, you know, families and other kinds of natural supports around kids are acquainted with their teachers is, I think, really, really helpful. But for me, and I'm thinking about my own children, all I really want out of school is for them and out of life is to be contented. I would much prefer for them to be contented and happy than to be a calculus master, right? And the freedom for them to define what it is that would make them contented. You want them to be challenged, but we are focusing on an environment that makes them feel safe, makes them feel part of a community, and that enables them to think critically. I think we need to still maintain academic rigor and high expectations. There's a role for things like benchmarking and assessment. Unfortunately, what I think is that the way we think about schooling now is that we sacrifice social and emotional skill building as an almost extracurricular thing. You know, we often say as school psychologists, your academic knowledge can get you the job, but your social emotional skills is going to help you keep that job. So how are we creating a community where kids feel safe to thrive in every way possible? You know, I'm going to quote Matthew Portell, who's a principal in Tennessee, when he was, he has a podcast himself on Trauma-Informed Educator Network podcast. And he was saying, when this was all happening, he said, my biggest fear is that everything will change. But my next biggest fear is that nothing will change. That's powerful. Any closing thoughts for superintendents, principals, educators, counselors, school psychologists, anyone that's connected to children and learning? Any closing thoughts for them? I think reaching out and trying to understand what others have experienced and look hard for the strengths that they have shown, the resilience that they have shown, the strategies that they can tell you about that worked well for them. You know, I wasn't sleeping. Well, how'd you figure that out? And what worked for you? And do more of those things that are working for you, even a little bit some of the time. And we only find those things out by asking questions. You know, again, starting from a philosophical perspective that in all things really, but certainly in the last several months, people have done the best they can with what they know and the resources that they had available to them. And if you start with that as your driving assumption, then your responses become centered around how can I understand what was happening here and what this person has experienced and, and what things they learned in that experience rather than judging something as right or wrong. And I think that, you know, again, we've all been seeing and hearing some parents weren't able to get broadband and some parents weren't able to do these things. And, you know, some teachers didn't reach out and provide the right kinds of resources. And, you know, all of these sorts of judgments that can come into a, a difficult circumstance that we find ourselves in. But again, if you start out with that notion that people are doing the best they can with what they have and what they know, then you're in a much better place to form a partnership with those others and really figure out how to support each other through the next steps. I'll add on to that two closing thoughts, which one we didn't talk that much about, but this exists within a good trauma-informed schooling approach is family engagement and family supports. And actually, Dr. Minky is an expert in this too in her previous life as a professor for almost three decades. But 
you know, we know that when we support families and caregivers, we're supporting the kids. You know, parental mental wellness is a major predictor of student wellness. So when kids are stressed, their families are stressed and vice versa. So finding ways to be supportive, communicative, and engage families in the process, particularly those that often feel marginalized, that may lack trust in a public system like the school, because, you know, schools are part of the public system, much like, you know, law enforcement and the, the medical community. So fostering that trust and creating, you know, a partnership and an open door partnership versus a, we tell you what we're doing can be extremely beneficial to the students in the school. I think lastly, you know, I want to be sure, especially for administrators and superintendents, that you are looking to your school-employed mental health professionals to help you. And often school psychologists, they're thought of as people that are purely engaged in special education assessment processes. But the truth is, so many school psychologists are trained to do so much more, to participate in systems-level evaluation and reform, prevention, promotion of strengths, family collaboration, community collaboration, and many school psychologists looking for the opportunity to say, I can help. So call on the people that are on your staff, that are in your school, that are part of the community. They know the students, they know the teachers, they're a ready resource. Thinking About Day One, a trauma-informed reopening of schools, is a proud part of the IB Voices podcast. To listen to more stories from the schools, students, and educators in the International Baccalaureate Program, subscribe to IB Voices on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about the IB, including how to become an IB school, visit ibo.org. Thanks for listening.